Hello and welcome to Insights, the podcast from the Cork University Business School at UCC, bringing you some of the most topical and informative research from Cubs that is making an impact not just in Cork, Munster and Ireland, but beyond. I'm Anthony MacDonald, Head of the Department of Management and Marketing, and on this, our first episode, we're discussing the topical and thorny issue of populism and the reason for its rise in regional areas, asking, could it happen in Ireland too? Peter Casey's impact in the recent presidential election being a case in point. Declan Jordan is Cubs Senior Lecturer in Economics and Co-Director of the Spatial and Regional Economics Research Centre, and we discussed regional economics and the dangers of the problems caused by imbalances in the economic system. But here's something else that might surprise you. Did you know that city dwellers are actually happier than rural ones? Declan Jordan explains more. City dwellers are happier than rural dwellers, uh, which goes against the, um, you know, I suppose the, the myth that we have. You know, if we think of, you know, sylvan countrysides and, uh, you know, this bucolic look, view of, 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 uh, of the countryside where everybody is not, where nobody's stressed out and so on. Um, but no, we, we, the, the literature is coming down to say that cities, uh, cities are good for happiness. Cities are good for well-being. Now, of course, there is uh, always another side to that, um, where cities become too big, uh, where, where cities are not properly planned. Um, so, for example, where you have cities that are congested with traffic, which have bad environmental um, uh, situation, those aren't nice places to live, and they, those impact on on um, uh, on well-being. But all other things equal, having people around you, having networks, having contacts, having a support structure and friends, and all these things are facilitated by living close to other people happen um, happen uh, within cities. So, um, w- interestingly, I suppose it's not from the region- regional um, literature, but uh, income tends not to be associated with more happiness. So, being richer doesn't make you happier. Uh, and that's partly because we compare ourselves to others. So, as we get richer, others get richer. Uh, and, and, you know, if we look at, uh, our, we find that if we give, if somebody increases their income from one year to the next, there might be a short-term increase in their happiness, but it dissipates over time as they start comparing themselves again to others. Okay, very interesting. So you, you mentioned Brexit um, already. So that's a topic that I guess we can't get away from. Um, you, it's obviously been a topic that you've been quite vocal about and you've, and you've wrote about. Um, how exposed is Ireland to um, the fallout from Brexit? The impact of Brexit will be asymmetric. So some regions, it's potential, potentially actually some regions could benefit, right? So we, we could, it's not too difficult to, to see, uh, you know, uh, Cork or Dublin, particularly say Dublin Financial Services, could benefit from attracting multinationals into Ireland that are leaving the UK if there is a hard Brexit. Um, but, you know, from, from other regional perspectives, you have, um, for example, rural areas, um, that are very uh, heavily dependent on basic manufacturing, agri-food, agriculture. Um, those are low-margin businesses, a lot of SMEs, indigenous SMEs, and uh, also also exporting into the UK. So those are the businesses that are exposed to a hard Brexit, and those businesses are not evenly distributed in space. So it's going to be, I, I, I suspect areas outside of the city regions that will feel the the impact of Brexit most significantly. Um, if, if you take a European perspective, it's interesting to note that um, the UK, of course, all UK regions are most highly um, exposed to, to uh, a hard Brexit. Ireland is the only, Irish regions are the only regions which come anywhere near to the exposure of the UK regions. 
the continental regions, Germany and France, they're they're of much lower exposure to a hard Brexit. So when you come when you come down to look at negotiations, when the UK say, well, you know, Germany has as much to lose from a Brexit as the UK has, it's absolutely not the case. Um, there is very little impact on regional on, on any region in in Germany, for example, uh, that goes anywhere near the impact on the UK. Um, Ireland is similar to to London, the, the London region, and then every other region in the UK, particularly the northeast, Wales, uh, Scotland, are particularly exposed. Okay, so like I suppose we're just we're, we've come out of recession, and there's been I suppose many positive aspects in terms of people seeing the recovery, but there's also a lot of talk about areas that haven't. Um, seen recovery from from the recession if that's then in form with the imbalance potentially of brexit in the country is it the same areas that are potentially going to get is there a double hit for those that have still not come out of the recovery well versus brexit or are they potentially different yeah well we we um yeah it is the case that, that those um businesses that are most vulnerable after the as after the recovery are also the ones that are most vulnerable um to brexit so you do get this uh, you know, um, it's not a double whammy because I think I think though we we can overplay the extent to which the recovery isn't evenly distributed. Um, all recoveries are unevenly distributed. Um, all economy, all regions have different strengths and will grow at different rates. Um, the Irish economy, even when it went through, even through the the boom phase of the Celtic Tiger, there was still pockets of deprivation. Um, within our cities and also uh, from a, a regional, a larger regional perspective. Um, and if we go, if we go around a city like Cork or a city like Dublin, uh, we'll find pockets of deprivation there as well. Depending on how lo- how how low we go in terms of our unit of analysis, if we take it on the neighbourhood level, there are certainly neighbourhoods in in Cork City that aren't doing well. But then the poorest neighbourhood in Cork City might still be doing better than one of the richest neighbourhoods in, say, Leitrim or in, in um, uh, Roscommon or someone like that. So I think we, 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 need to, we need to be realistic about the extent to which you can get balanced regional growth. Balanced regional growth is, is, a, is, a, is a, a good aim to have and we should strive to have it and reduce inequality. Um, but it, it, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to all be growing at the same rate um, through the recovery or, or even once the recovery gets entrenched, we'll still see, I think, the city regions pulling ahead. I mean, looking at Ireland 2040, I mean, that, that, that framework, national planning framework, I think correctly really shows that it's the city regions that are going to drive Irish economic growth. And, and I think what we need to focus in on is how, do, how does Cork, Limerick, Waterford and Galway contribute and um, drive that growth rather than leaving it all to Dublin. So the balance, the balance will not necessarily be for all counties. It'll be for the, the, the other city regions to be a counterpoint to Dublin. And how set up are we for addressing those challenges and making those regional cities um, contribute more in the, over the next few decades? Not, not well set up, I would say. Um, we, we've a, we've a, we do have a problem, a long-standing problem in Ireland with our planning. Um, we, we create... We create, um, you know, city, for, for example, commuting in cities which, which don't make sense. We, we have a, a, a tendency um, in Ireland to spread out. We like to spread out. We like to be uh, living in a one-off house out in, uh, you know, out in the countryside um, with our acre of land around us. Um, and then 
that that's fine if that's if that's what's what lots of us want to want to achieve and to have gardens and low uh, rise uh, development um, that's fine but there's a cost involved in that uh, and that cost is in terms of commuting that cost is in terms of providing services um, at a higher cost than would be the case if they were more dense um, Cork is a good example of that, where we have these satellite towns around Cork, um, which are growing rapidly, but that's not where the jobs are. The jobs then are in Little Island, the jobs are in the city, the jobs are in, in places where the houses aren't. Um, so what we need to do is we need to have a more, um, uh, I suppose, holistic view of how we develop our cities and how we grow our cities and how we make our cities livable. Even coming back to the original idea around happiness, you know, our, our, our cities need to be places where you can get around and you can congregate and you can meet, you can socialize more easily. Um, there's a, a, a book on, on um, Happy Cities uh, by Charles Montgomery and, and he, t- he, he writing mostly about America, but he says one of the key drivers of unhappiness in cities is commuting. If you're sitting in your car for a long period of time, you're going to be less happy. And that's what's happened in the US and that seems to be where we're going in Ireland too. We're very car dependent. Um, so I think if we're going to attract in the kind of labor force we want to attract in you know, the creative class uh, people who uh, you know want to you know live in cities and be surrounded by people or people who are, cre- who are creative and to be part of a scene then we're going to have to develop more cities within the, the make them more dense uh, provide more amenities within the center so that people can cycle walk and congregate and meet within those cities rather than come into work sit in your car go home and sit in your nice house with your with your big garden Sorry, we've just been through a, a presidential election and I guess maybe some commentators were surprised with the support received by Peter Casey. Does, to what extent could that um, be linked to concerns over spatial inequality and that's potentially leading to the rise of populism? From, from a, a global perspective, um, it's fairly clear that regional inequality is one of the main drivers of the rise of populist parties, uh, both on on the on the, the right extreme right and on the extreme left, uh, and you know, I suppose we're tired of hearing that it's the Rust Belt that created Donald Trump, that he's operating in the middle of America, not in the coasts, um, that Brexit really is driven not necessarily by London, uh, London becoming more of a global city rather than a UK city, but really driven by you know this this um, disillusion in Wales in the northeast of England and the southwest. Um, and in Europe as well, we're seeing regional uh, issues driving the rise of of, um, of uh, populism. I, I'm I'm not convinced that that's t- that's the case in Ireland. Ireland is, of course, special. Um, I think it's it's we we've never had a, a, a large populist either right or left party. Well, except to the extent you might consider Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael to be populist themselves, because you know they have. A history of, you know, being able to move themselves, to, to bend themselves to whatever the dollar arithmetic requires in terms of being, you know, partnering with the progressive Democrats who would who would certainly not be left, and then the following uh, cycle partnering with Labour. So they're they're very fluid within within where they might uh, where they might see themselves um, operating. So they are not an extreme party, but they are certainly populist parties. Um, also, if you look at, at what happened with, with Peter with Peter Casey, um, it wasn't a particular location, although he he did very well in in places like Tipperary. It, it wasn't a, a one pocket that drove it. It wasn't you know urban versus rural. Um, 
he got support, you know, and not insignificant support, but we can't, we shouldn't overplay it either. He got support from across across the geog- geographical spread. So I'd be less inclined to see it as a regional issue. Um, I think, you know, Ireland isn't going, to, I think, to have a, a rise of a, of a populist party. I mean, our level, you know, w- if we look back at our, at our history, um, we haven't had a um, you know a large net migration until net immigration until the Celtic Tiger. Um, we were v- were a very homogenous looking um, and not just looking we are a homogenous population. Um, so we haven't had the type of anti-immigration um, reaction that other places would have had. I think partly because when we did have net immigration, there was lots of jobs for everybody. So there was no sense that there was, was uh, immigrants taking jobs away from indigenous populations. So I, I'm less I'm less worried. I'd have to say that we would see a rise um, of the kind of extreme parties that we've seen in Europe and in America. Okay, so Declan, you've had a busy year in the context of not only were you organising such a major international conference, but yourself and colleagues um, also launched the Spatial and Regional Economic Research Centre at Cubs. Can you talk to us about what your plans are for the, the development of this new centre? Yeah, so so this centre is based um, uh, within the Department of Economics in Cubs. Um, we have six members and the co-director is Justin Dorn. Um, and it, it was set up, I suppose, to um, put a, a an organising organize it, to put some kind of a structure on what we were already doing. So we have a, a quite an active group of regional scientists within the department. Um, uh, we, you know, we are all part of regional science associations, we're part of regional studies and so on. Um, so we wanted to harness that, we wanted to grow that. Um, and that one of the best ways we saw to do that was to actually establish ourselves as a research center. Um, what that does is allows us to uh, present ourselves as um, regional scientists or regional economists to our network um, within our international, within in, in international and national uh, and national uh, networks. So what we're in, what we're focusing on is extensive research. Um, what what our, I suppose our philosophy is that if we do excellent research, that will make it. Uh, more policy relevant that that will mean that we will be generating the types of um, the types of insights that uh, policymakers will need in order to better inform policy. So, for example, my colleague Frank Crowley, um, who leads the theme on um, urban economics, regional and urban economics, he's very engaged in how to develop you know active commuting patterns for for Cork, how we can plan Cork. A better way, and this is becoming very uh, topical now with the with the the ban on on cars on Patrick Street, um, and you know changing our um, transport modes within within Cork City to accommodate uh, a doubling of population in the next few years. So I think the the those are the kind of issues that we're looking at, um, and that then will lead into discussions with uh, city managers. Uh, with um, local government, um, and it will inform that discussion better. W- you know what we see is that politics plays a big role in this, um, and local politics, particularly, is is um, is a difficult uh, area to negotiate. So we're kind of stepping outside policy and just saying, look, we're going to focus on research, and then this research will influence the policy to provide the evidence that you need to make the decisions that the politicians really have to make. And that seems to be tying up in just my own area of HR. We're talking about evidence-based practice now, and I guess that comes back to you're looking at trying to 
use research in terms of its influence and policy and that intersection between research and, and policy so you see that as you see that as really central yeah, we do without without actually being um let's say driven by policy right so we're we're not um going out and seeking you know you know the policy interaction what we're doing is we're saying right if we focus in on what we're good at um which we think is uh you know, good quality research, publishing published research in international peer review journals. If we focus in on that, and also act as a bridge um, between uh, international um, research, right? Inter- international research networks, some of the best research, regional scientists in the world. If we can bring our knowledge and their knowledge to bear together, that then will be available to policymakers in order to inform them the policy that they do, rather than necessarily, you know, taking the policy and saying, well, look, we're going to look at this issue and we're going to look at that issue. We're going to look at what we do at, look at what we can do best, and then hopefully that that will um, lead to better policy through its, I suppose, an indirect effect. Okay, so, uh, you know, as a centre, you seem to be um, very focused on making your research accessible as well um, through various media contributions. You're all, from what I can see, very engaged in social media. Is that type of strategy in terms of that awareness, is that beginning to pay dividends yet? Or is that a longer run piece as well in terms of trying to get into the into the minds and of these key decision makers? Um, yeah, I mean, social media has been... Um, really beneficial to us because it's allowed us to engage with an, uh, audiences that we wouldn't have been allowed able to engage with otherwise so we're able to make ourselves known uh, at, uh, you know simultaneously to a research audience and also to a policy audience um and and you know again this this bridge role that we want to play between um you know Irish policymakers um or even cork policymakers and international research um, you know that's facilitated by social media, so we can take, you know, a paper done by Andres Rodriguez Pose or Philip McCann uh, in LSE or in in Sheffield, respectively, and we can, you know, share that online. We know that our audience includes local policymakers uh, and Irish policymakers, so they're now seeing this research as well through us. So they're seeing us as a resource, um, and that's 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 quite exciting. I mean, we we had we did go out of our way to use social media to raise our profile because when you're starting off a research center i suppose the first couple of weeks really what you want to do is you just want people to know your name right to be able to see to see your logo and to see your name and know who you are um so we had a a, a kind of a campaign called map of the week where we would um you know put up a, an interesting map from eurostat or or uh, from from a research paper um and that really got huge traction. It's amazing how many people like maps. Um, well, we love maps because we're regional science, but we didn't think everybody else did. But everybody loves maps. So um, we were getting retweeted, uh, you know, significantly. We're getting a lot of hits on, on that uh, on that campaign. Um, so, you know, there's things that we can do um, that, you know, help us so almost in a guerrilla marketing technique to kind of raise our profile at low cost um, and, and, and low risk as well. So over the next 18 months, so what, what research from the centre that particularly excites you in terms of its potential impact? So we have, we have three themes uh, within the centre. So one is spatial economic analysis, and Justin uh, Dorn leads that. Uh, we have um, spatial aspects of innovation, um, you know, innovation and place. Uh, uh, Jane Burke uh, leads that theme. And then, as, as I mentioned, Frank Crowley leads the theme on um, uh, regional and urban economics. And... Each of those themes are um, are active. Um, I suppose, you know, the, the key questions that we're looking at in those is 
does um, does a lo- does a location matter for a firm's innovation? So the literature talks about you know knowledge spillovers for the for firms and so on. So you know is is there is there something about a firm being in Dublin that gives it an innovation advantage over over being in Cork, for example? And is that sectorally different? Um, what one aspect of that that uh, we're currently working on is does more does more entrepreneurial regions encourage firms to do more in R&D or not because there's there's a risk in R&D if you do research and development um, there's a risk that some of that will leak over to other firms other firms will take that and if they're located near you they're more likely to do that but of course there's also the other side of that sort if you're located close to other firms doing R&D then you can benefit so your R&D can benefit from being near them so we're we think we're onto something that there may be even be a U-shape so you know being near other firms entrepreneurial firms startups could reduce your likelihood of doing R&D up to a certain point, after which, yeah, you're more likely to do R&D because you've got lots of ideas around and there isn't just one f- one firm or one or two firms necessarily going to steal your ideas. Um, also, this idea of regional resilience is very interesting. So um, we're looking at the you know uh, European and also US data, to the extent to which um, firms are resilient, uh, sorry, regions are resilient, but now actually looking at whether individuals are resilient, so looking at labor market data from a, uh, a spatial uh, perspective. And then also then, you know, uh, uh, cities, um, you know, are, are, is, the size, is the size of the cities in a country um, good for growth of that country or not? So should you have a, one large city, maybe capital city driving uh, national growth, or should you spread it out? Should you have a couple of even-sized cities? Is that better for growth? Um, and then we'll also look and see, well, what, what does that mean for national inequality? So does having larger cities mean that countries are more unequal? Um, because then again, that feeds into you know, th- the rise of these uh, places that don't matter, as Andres rodriguez Posta calls them, you know, places that don't matter. Uh, so the people in, in those places feel left behind. And then we'll turn to you know, more uh, populist parties and, and, and could lead to a breakdown in social cohesion and um, uh, national economies that uh, that could be avoided with, you know, a more interventionist place-based policy for those lagging regions. And is that something that we need in this country where, you know, I guess there's a lot of media contributions at time about everything and the resources in Dublin that we are too Dublin-centric? Is that borne out in terms of evidence or...? Yeah, I mean it. It is. It, it's. It's funny when you talk to um, when you talk to policymakers in Ireland, they always talk about you know we need to grow together. We need everywhere to grow. We need every place to make its contribution. But almost one of the first things they'll say, and it's it's half in jest, is they'll refer to well, yeah, well, Limerick won the All Ireland, or well, I'm from Cork, and you're welcome to Cork. Uh, who do you know from Cork? What are you doing down here? This kind of half joking, but still we're very tribal. We're still very parochial um so so when you scratch the surface just a little bit that kind of yeah we'll all grow together i think starts to fall apart a little bit um people still people in cork still want growth in cork people in limerick still want growth in limerick and if people in limerick see cork getting something they say well well, well, hang on a minute we 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 want that too so until you have i think uh, a change in the clientelist um Kind of, uh, I suppose the the, you know, the, the political structure. You're not going to get. You're not going to move away from that. You're still going to have. I mean, the, the Ireland 2040 is a perfect example of this, where um, it was clear that it was going to be cities, city regions were going to be the focus for the planning framework for for the next 20 years. 
two weeks before it was launched, it was released to the government uh, and TDs, and suddenly we had to tone down all the cities. We had to big up all the, the all the issues around rural development and not leaving rural areas behind, um, and it just became like. Uh, um, like the the decentralization program before and the national space strategy before, it became about making sure everybody got something, um, and I, I I think that'll continue as long as you've got uh, political representatives representing counties and and county interests, uh, and we don't have a situation like for example if we have a list system where you have you know half the TDs elected based on a on a on a list who don't represent an area who can actually make a policy or make policies that are good for the country not necessarily for one region and uh, and balancing it between one region and another region make sure everybody gets a hospital everybody gets um, you know a multinational factory everybody gets uh, a, a new motorway um, and until we change that then i think we're going to continue to have this kind of uh, um, you know spatial redistributive policy as opposed to a national policy which has distributive effects. So do we see that then at, in terms of higher political levels? Does that have an impact? So if if we get a Cork Taoiseach, uh, is Cork likely to do better? Was was Mayo served well with their seri- senior people? Do, does yeah. balance of location of um, yeah, all, senior ministers? All the evidence points to it. I mean, I have colleagues uh, in, in who look at, uh, at sports uh, economics uh, and they've done studies which have looked at the, effect, the, the distribution of sports grants and that the most significant determinant of whether you get a, whether a, of the amount of sports grants that goes to location is whether the Minister for Sports comes from that location and also the Minister for Finance. Jane Souter, uh, who's now in DCU, a member a couple of years ago, presented at the Economics Association, Irish Economics Association conference and she looked at education spending and where education spending was going and the most significant determinant was where was it Minister for Education from, not where the demand in terms of student numbers was, but it was it was where the Minister for Education was, it was where the Minister for Finance was, and it was where the Taoiseach was. So um, we do have a problem, but it's not just Ireland, of course, right? There are there are political systems that that counteract that. For example, a list system would counteract some of that. Um, but uh, any system where you've got this uh, uh, regionally based political system. Um, has pork belly politics. Um, just you know, we look in the U.S. Um, and the states. You know, if this, if if, if particular um, senators uh, have the deciding vote, oh, guess what gets added to the bottom of the bill that we need? You know, uh, you know, we need you to agree this this um, a bill that has to do with the environment, and added in at the end is uh, a couple of schools for the state. You know, so we aren't the only country, but you know, it it, it works against. Um, effective uh, regional policy and it works, effect- works against effective national policy too. Okay, so thanks very much Declan for your insights um, and continued success. Thanks. And that's all we have time for on our first episode of Insights, the Cubs Business Podcast. My thanks to Declan Jordan, Senior Lecturer in Economics and Co-Director of the Spatial and Regional Economics Research Centre, Cubs UCC. Don't forget you can subscribe on Apple and Google Podcasts or Spotify and for more information go to cubsucc.com. I'm Anthony MacDonald. Thanks for listening and join me next time for more Cubs Business Insights.